You're listening to a Soundcast interview with composers Theodore Shapiro, Nitin Sani, and Rupert Gregson-Williams. I'm Kristen Romanelli. You can find more interviews and all of our episodes at thesoundcast.com, or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. Wherever you do listen, please give us a rating and a review, as it really helps us to know that you're listening and helps us make the show better. You can send us your feedback at soundcast at tracksounds.com, our speakpipe widget on Twitter at Audio Soundcast, or on Facebook. First, we speak with Theodore Shapiro about his score to Karn Kasama's Destroyer, starring Nicole Kidman. Shapiro's score had a digital release from Lakeshore Records on November 16th. The film came out over Christmas. Everything really started with the script. I read the script, which is wonderful, um, by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi early on in, in the process and Karin and I started having conversations about what we thought the music was going to be. You know, we talked about some musical references. Um, you know, she sent me some things to listen to. You know, we talked about um, the band Godspeed You Black Emperor, which is this sort of ambient noise rock, like sort of epic noise rock. We always talk about Wagner and specifically the beginning of uh, Das Rheingold and and I think that what what unites those two pretty disparate ideas is the idea of obsessive and and sort of inexorable waves of sound That was one of the jumping off points that we had. Um, and and then in, in addition, you know, a lot of the ideas really came out of the character of Aaron Bell, played by Nicole Kidman, who's this deeply complicated character who has almost this feral quality about her. And so we wanted to explore the idea of these sort of animal sounds, something that, that, that abstractly evoked the idea of an animal sound, um, uh, and, and also sort of something that would get at the idea of her a scattered and fragmented um, state of being. And so we wanted to get at that too. So, the, you know, the first thing that we did was um, this improvisational recording session where we had uh, two string players and a synth player and a guitar player. And I set up these, you know, musical structures. Um, some of them were more, some of them were more just loops for the players to play over and some of them were a little bit more um you know were really the foundations for pieces of music fully self-contained pieces um and then we just experimented over those and then you know after i had that material i spent some time 
just writing with those with that audio as building blocks and for the pieces that were more self-contained ideas just sort of finishing those ideas and orchestrating and doing the things that I wanted to do to finish them and and with some of the other things it was really about taking those snippets of audio and building a composition So then, I, you know, I wrote over a span of time about an hour of music, um, which I delivered to Karen and which, um, you know, she had with her in production. And uh, she delivered that music to the department heads during production to give them a sense of where she thought the tone of this movie was going to be. Um, you know, she even gave it to Nicole Kidman, who listened to it while she was preparing to play the part. And um, so it was it was amazing to be able to participate in the production side of the process, which I, I usually get to do. OK, so there's this long history of L.A. noir films, and this feels and sounds like a, a new take on that, really. How does story differentiate itself? Um, you know, well, f first of all, I mean, I think to take the most simple but important aspect of it is that this is a female-centered film and th there's a grand history of of the la noir and they're all about men when it's a male-dominated or a male-centric film their struggles with you know being a parent are generally uncommented upon that's really front and center of, of what this movie is I, I certainly can't say that i was approaching the material thinking like how am i going to do a different take on the la you know that it, it really it it came out of who the character was um you know i really just tried to follow who aaron bell was but i think that probably the very nature of who her character is produced a different musical idea yeah Erin's this really deeply complex woman, but, she, you know, she's a cop, but she's had things gone wrong, and she feels that, like, she feels that affect her soul and who she is as a person. Yeah, I mean, it is literally, like, sort of tearing her apart. This was a story, and this was an instance where the story really kind of told me what to do, and, and, um, and the writing told me what to do, and I just sort of followed up. Tell me a bit more about finding that musical tone for Aaron and her, her vendetta against Silas and scoring her past and her relationship with Chris and her present relationship with her daughter. Um, well, first of all, on a, just a purely sonic level, I think that the, the string sounds um, that we went after is an interesting first layer of how to get at her character. You know, um, there's a lot of extended violin techniques, a lot of, you know, um, you know, batting the bow on the strings and and squeaks and, and um, playing on the bridge and harmonics and, you know, the, the, the just a lot of things that sort of are creating this constant sonic palette of unease and and fragmentation. 
Um, and, and so on a surface level, I think that that what the strings are doing and both in, in the playing and the way that they're processed is is creating a surface that matches um, Aaron's character. Then as we, you know, as sort of going more into the, the composition, one of the things that we wanted to play around with was this idea of, of circular music because there's this idea of the of the cycle that's built into the film and you know you have specifically this idea of descending scales that sort of double up and and sort of loop on one another so that it sort of feels like one constantly descending line where the 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 end of the the end of the scale is the beginning of the next iteration and those scales sort of throughout the film are are used uh, to evoke her her search and her sort of engagement in in a in a in a seek and destroy mode and the relentlessness of of her pursuit um and then at the end, it flips where the scales become this release and this this kind of final Wagnerian statement of uh, of transcendence. sort of the is the key thematic idea in the movie and and really the the primary foundation of of what I wanted to sort of accomplish thematically and then you asked an interesting question about the past versus present because the, the film takes place in two time periods one present and one is is 18 years earlier and there are definitely some interesting um, distinctions between those two time periods. The, I mean, the the the, the music in that that covers the stuff in the past, and specifically the relationship with Chris, played by Sebastian Stan, is much more the music of memory, and it floats more. And and even in the flashback, there are two bank heists in the movie. The flashback bank heist has a completely different character than the than the present bank heist. It's much more airy and the violins are just sort of like shooting sparks off into space. feels a lot more abstract and ethereal, even though they are both extremely tense in their own way. The one in the present is much more sort of propulsive and driving.
I'm glad that you um, talked a bit about transcendence because as we move through the film, the score definitely goes from this very gritty aspect to something absolutely sublime. You have this chacon, which is one of my favorite musical forms, which, ah. which goes into that cycle that you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. The chacon um, only appears in the end credits of the film. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I I felt it needed to be, it, it really never found a home within the body of the, of the film. It was something that I wrote before, before we, we started. But it felt like somehow a, a bird's eye view of, of the whole film. Um, and so the end credits feels apt to me. We're so inside Aaron's head throughout the film, and I, I think that it's really the first time that the music kind of pulls back and gives a bird's eye view perspective on what we've seen. And honestly, I can't even say that I was cognizant when I wrote it that that's what it was doing. But sort of as we discovered what the film was, it came more and more into focus. Next, we speak with Nitin Sani about his work on Mowgli, directed by Andy Serkis and currently available through Netflix. Water Tower Music released the soundtrack on CD and digital on November 30th. Let's start off with your connection with Andy Serkis and how you came onto the project. Sure. Um, I I met Andy um, quite a long time ago. Actually, we uh, we met when he was working with Ninja Theory, um, which is a video game company, and he asked if I would do the music for uh, a game called Heavenly Sword, and I did the music for that, and we got on very well. And then I did the music for another video game uh, with Alex Garland writing, um, who's the director, writer, sci-fi guy, and that went really well. And then. Um, and then I did the music for a film that he did a year ago called Breathe. We'd become good friends by this time. And, uh, but, but actually, Mowgli, he asked me to do quite a long time ago, about five years ago. Um, so this is the fourth project that's come out. But it's actually um, it's the third project that he asked me to work on because I, I worked on it before Breathe. And it was, it was interesting because, um, you know, at that time, there was no Disney version in the making or anything. So this was kind of... Uh, this was he approached me, and this was a fresh idea. And uh, I think it was only later that Disney kind of uh, 
excited to go for doing one as well but it was it was quite exciting i just kind of thought yeah it's great and and also just because he's such a nice guy and i get on with him really well it's very easy to communicate with him and he's a very intelligent and visionary director so it's it's, um a pleasure to work with him really it's very clear what he's our communication is very clear and so um it's always very enjoyable and he's he's very musical himself he's a great saxophone player but he's musically intuitive as a, as a result of that i didn't know that he played saxophone that is fantastic <laughs> he's very good actually he um well you know he was uh, he was he played the injury in sex drugs and rock and roll as a singer but he's he's musical anyway i mean he um he used to play saxophone in in jazz quartets and so on and he's he's pretty pretty good actually I mean, he's got a great tone on the saxophone so much so that i got him to play some uh some saxophone on the score for breathe and it was great to have that personal touch in the same way that i actually did a cameo or performed a cameo in this film in mowgli he he performed a, a saxophone cameo in uh, breathe which i think is really good <laughs> that's fantastic so mowgli was somewhat famously mired in post-production for a few years how did mm. this affect your work I think it's, I think in a positive way in that it allowed us to kind of uh, look deeper into, into the vocabulary and really think about bringing out, um, you know, Roger Kipling's perception and, and vision a little bit more in the way that we were approaching everything. Um, I think, I think it's always great to have time to really look at the vocabulary of a, of a film and, and to really think carefully about how you want to, how you want it to sound unique and, and, uh, also to develop themes and ideas. And um, for me, um, it was about playing with Mowgli's theme in lots of different ways. I mean, I came up with that melody uh, quite early on because I, I feel very strongly that a film like this should have a powerful melody. And that was very important to me to get a to get a strong melody that could be could work in many different ways across the movie. And um, so I needed to find Mowgli's melody really. And then it was so versatile. I mean, it was great because I could turn it into a song, you know, at the end, or I could turn it into quite tragic moments. It was just so uh, useful to have this um, melody that really felt like it captured the essence of who Mowgli was. There was a sense of wistfulness, and I guess a sense of hope but coming from a kind of tragic past and i think there's something about that in the melody itself i can't explain it in words but it felt that way to me and then the instrumentation the orchestration of it you know came from from that so it was um it was really enjoyable working on that having that uh that real length of time to to find something um special i guess yeah yeah, good. Um, so you've covered a little bit the sound for Mowgli himself. Um, can mm. you tell me about the sound for the jungle, the sound for Shere Khan with that throat singer, and mm. eventually the sound for the man village? Yeah, so there was, for example, with the sound of the jungle, what I wanted to do was have this kind of sense of uh, woodwind uh, kind of implying insects. And so I used some random scoring techniques to get across the sense of a 
uh, of a jungle that felt alive with these small creatures. And so woodwind really kind of reflected that. And sometimes it was quite breathy, small sounds that were playing simultaneously from the orchestra in different ways. And I think you hear that, for example, when Joe, uh, Mowgli's walking through the jungle uh, towards Carr, when when there's that long car scene where he's talking to Kate Blanchett as Carr in her lair, explaining the future or talking to him about the future. Before that, there's this little scene where he's walking. And I think um, in a few of those scenes, I, I really was trying to feel how the woodwind would really get across the sound of, of, of the jungle. Khan's sound, I mean, you also have this brass as well as the throat singing. I wanted to get a kind of primeval quality to this. The throat singing was essentially um, the law of the jungle, the jungle itself, that, that kind of most savage, unforgiving part of the, the, the jungle. Um, so it's kind of more, it's more than just Khan. It's Khan as an allegorical kind of character representing um, the darker sides of the, of the jungle and the most unforgiving, visceral aspects of the jungle. And in terms of the village um, where um, Mowgli encounters man and so on, there's there's quite a few different elements I've brought in. It became a bit more uh, classically orientated because there's this idea that Lockwood listens to Elgar um, is kind of, you know, very much part of the British Empire. There's a sense of colonialism that I want to also get across. So I switched it up a little bit in terms of the sounds. But then again, for the holy scene, uh, where there's this real village, you know, dance scene, where there's the Festival of Colours, I want to get the authentic uh, flavour of that. So I wrote a piece that feels very much in uh, in the tradition of, of that kind of music from, uh, from which you would have in, in a traditional holy Festival of Colours scene. And then there's also Frida Pinto. I wrote a song with my mother uh, for the moment where she's singing a lullaby to him. And my mum wrote the lyrics and I wrote a piece and we have it on the end credits. And it's, um, it's kind of, it just means lullaby. And it's, it was just quite a tender moment between them. So I wanted to have a kind of song that felt very natural uh, for, for Frida Pinto to sing. So I went to the set in South Africa and um, spent some time with Frida Pinto uh, playing her the song as I imagined it, uh, with my mum's lyrics, and she kind of sung it beautifully, actually. She has a really sweet voice. So it was great to get those nuanced kind of things of working with diegetic music as well as non-diegetic music, which I found really interesting. (laughs) 
I love that you wrote that with your mother. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. And I write, I mean, for my, um, I mean, I make albums. I'm an album artist as well. So I've written with her quite frequently. And um, what's nice is she has a, she has a style where she gets into very old poetry. It's, she writes in a Shakespearean, the equivalent of a Shakespearean way. She's always done that. And she's, she's, uh, she comes from a line of poets as well. My grandmother was a poet. And on my dad's side, my grandfather was a poet. So it's very important to me that lyrics have that kind of weight and gravitas behind them. One of the things that I felt uh, was that um, what I saw it as was about Roger Kipling, but also... The closest thing I could think of when I first saw it was Gladiator, was the film Gladiator, um, because, it, you know, it felt like a hero's journey in that kind yeah. of Joseph Campbell sense. But it was also times when he's going through the hardship and, you know, when he sees Boots Head, um, you feel like it's a similar scene to where Russell Crowe sees his, his wife hung on, you know, and it's, it's a brutal scene. And for me, it was um, it had that power to it that I thought, wow, this is a really strong story and and journey uh, in the way that that was you really felt a real empathy with Mowgli in the way you did with Russell Crowe and and that even that scene at the end with Shere Khan with the with the battle for me feels very much like Maximus against the Emperor and so you know it was um I wanted to have that kind of weight in the in the score as well so that it's it's a film that I think kids could see but probably kids who might go and see Jurassic Park or Planet of the Apes or you know teenagers I think sometimes um, people forget that because they they are automatically defaulting to thinking of either the 1967 Disney movie which was fantastic or or the 2016 one and you kind of think you know I had I was in um, a Q&A thing with Andy in, in LA recently and uh, somebody said, you know, did you have to get permission because this is a Disney franchise? And Andy said, it absolutely isn't a Disney franchise. It's a public domain book, you know, by Roger Kipling. And um, rather than thinking of it that way, just look at it as a story that's come from a book. And I think as soon as people start switching their heads to that and lose all their perception of bare necessities and all these songs and, and stuff, I think they, they start to see it differently, thankfully. I wanted to talk a little bit about layering of instrumental texture in your score um, sure. especially in the that cue you are a man cub some very important soloists that I know well who I've worked with on a number of different projects. Um, one, one way I put it was they, they hear the grace between the notes. They hear, um, they hear something that is, is unique to the way they play as well. And I wanted the score to definitely sound unique. Um, and so, for example, when uh, Bakira says to Mowgli, you are a man, man cub, um, there's a very strong element of coming through a real journey to, to, to that moment of realization, self-realization. And, and I felt a lot of empathy with him as a British Asian, you know, somebody who grew up uh, with a Indian heritage, but in England, I was the only, just about the only Asian at my school. And I think when you hit puberty um, and you're at, at an all-boys school where, where it's actually where in a way you feel quite different, you feel quite other than everyone else, mm -hmm. um, Quite often I would, you know, use music as a place to go to 
because I didn't feel I belonged anywhere. You know, when I'd go home, the experiences I'd have at school didn't really make a lot of sense in my home context and, and vice versa. When I was at school, um, growing up in a pretty traditional Indian kind of household, it kind of felt quite different. So I would constantly be looking at ways of reconciling those two worlds. And, and I kind of felt that it needed a, not a tragic theme, but a theme that kind of um, was was very emotional because for me, looking back at that time is very emotional. And I think that those moments of self-realization of coming to terms and reconciling with your own identity and um, and looking at who you are, you know, in relation to context and heritage is a very powerful thing. And I kind of felt very strongly that I needed to find uh, the right sounds and the right orchestration. So, for example, I got Anna Phoebe, who's a brilliant violinist um, and has her own her own sound. She's a great improvisationist. She's played with a lot of well-known rock bands from Jethro Tull and Roxy Music to also great orchestras. And I really wanted her to work uh, to work in this moment. And also, you know, I've got uh, Ashwin Srinivasan is playing a lot of Bansuri, which is the Indian bamboo flute. Um, he's playing that through a lot of the score. And he's an amazing uh, soloist as well. And somebody who's in my band or has been in my band for many years. And it's one of my favorite musicians in the world. And again, I think a lot of people have been astonished at how, how his, um, his playing is on this score because it, there's not many players who can play like that. So it was, um, it was really great to get his kind of nuances and inflections into, that, into those moments. Excellent. Um, you started to go into this a little bit, um, but could you tell me about the experience of writing music for Rudyard Kipling's story as an Englishman with Indian heritage? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's kind of, um, it's interesting because, you know, before, um, quite a few years ago, about, um, about 12, 13 years back, I wrote the score for um, a film called A Throw of Dice, which was a an old silent movie that was set in India by a German director called Franz Austin. And this was in 1929. And it was, um, it was quite an exoticized tale. It had a, you know, 10,000 elephants and, and lots of tigers and very exotic and um, like a Cecil B. DeMille type of size or scale of movie. And so um, from that point of view, I found that really interesting. And I, having done that, and I, I worked with the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted that in different places around the world, but it was a lovely thing to have scored. And from, from that point of view, I, I found it quite interesting looking at how a Western perspective would interpret uh, India and look at India and look at Indian legendary stories and so on. So I, I think uh, with Roger Kipling, there was a sense of that kind of colonial uh, history. So what I really wanted to do was blend big orchestration, big Western orchestration with Indian classical music and really find a sound that didn't feel contrived in any way. I mean, when I listen to a lot of people who do this, because my background is I've spent a lot of time listening and playing Indian uh, instruments. I mean, I played, I grew up playing the doubla and I, I played some sadhan. and I was always interested in Indian classical music and worked with great uh, Kathak dancers like Akram Khan and so on. And at the same time, I had a very Western, traditional, classical background in that I, I studied all the grades on the piano and I did, um, I grew up as a classical and flamenco guitarist. And, you know, so I was into, I was into a lot of classical music, uh, Western classical music too. So for me, those two worlds were always apart, but I'd never had really much of an opportunity to join them together, uh, apart from sometimes on my own albums. So with this film, it really gave me 
a real chance to do that in a contemporary context and to find something hopefully timeless and of itself. And I'm, I'm very happy with how the score for me, reflects different parts of the way I think. So I really wanted to find a world that felt like it was working with both and, and that it felt like it was a colourful palette to work with that was about emotion before anything. So it came from emotions first and then everything kind of flowed from that in a way that didn't feel hopefully too contrived or, or forced together. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Thank you. Where can people hear your music next? Oh, blimey. I'm doing, I'm doing quite a lot of things. Um, well, I'm doing, I mean, I've just written the music for a Channel 4 series, uh, which I think will probably go to Netflix as well, which is now called Traitors. It was called Jerusalem, but it's now called Traitors, and it's a spy thriller uh, sec- just after the Second World War, which is a very powerful uh, thriller. But I'm doing lots of things. I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm writing a new national anthem for, um, for the National Youth Orchestra, and acquire the London Contemporary Voices to perform at the Barbican in London. Um, and that's being filmed by Sky Arts. And then um, Dystopian Dream was my last album. We just turned that into a choreographed show. And I'm coming over to Stanford University again to do some... I'll probably be showing some of the silent movies that I've scored, including The Lodger from Hitchcock, which I, which I did with the London, uh, London Symphony Orchestra. I, I did, as I mentioned, The Throw of Dice, which we're going to show there. Um, but I'm also doing... Um, I'm, I'm working on a new album. We're talking to several major record companies at the moment about the next album. So I'm, I'm probably going to start that early next year. We're playing at the Royal Albert Hall next year again with my band. Um, yeah, I've got loads already kind of uh, going on, but I'm very excited about Mowgli at the moment because it's just, it's just come out on Netflix and I'm very happy to kind of uh, go around talking about it because I'm very proud of the score and I, I think it's a great film. For more, listen to The Annotator, episode 56, where Sonny details five of his cues to Mowgli. Finally, Rupert Gregson Williams discusses his score to Aquaman, a box office titan since its December 21st release. The score is available on both CD and digital from Water Tower Music. You and your brother seem to be ruling the underwater worlds this year, huh? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I, you know what? I, we. We're we're working together at the moment, and we had not even drawn that. Um, we hadn't joined joined the dots like you have, yeah, but yeah, we are. <laughs> You're back with the DCEU this time with James Wan for Aquaman. Um, it's quite a different story from Wonder Woman. Um, you're right. They're they're very very different um, characters and different movies. In 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 a way, Wonder Woman. <laughs> Uh, it's obviously a fantastical story, and it's um, and she's a superhero. But in a way, the movie felt plausible and real um, when I when I was writing it. Um, whereas with Aquaman, you know, James Wan's vi- vision is very much you know 
um, in line with the comic books he's a big fan of. And, you know, it's within the first, the first few frames of, of the movie, you know, you're in, in comic book territory. And, 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 and so you, you don't hold, you, you don't hold back in a way you would with some plausible story um, telling you, you, you know, you let yourself go and, and get on for the ride. So yeah, very, very different. And of course we're also in two different, we're on land and we're in, we're in, um, uh, we're under the sea or with in Atlantis. And so that aspect is, is very different. Sonically, everything is very, very different under the water and, and hopefully the score reflects that. Mm. So you are very much about character themes. Tell me about some of the music for Arthur Curry and the other characters in the movie. I love writing themes for different characters, and and this this movie has a bold, pugnacious, and cheeky um, <laughs> hero in Arthur Curry and Aquaman, um, and and also we have two villains. We have his his brother, and we have Black Manta, and we have a couple of love stories, and of course then we have Atlantis, which is kind of another character, if you like. So right at the beginning of this process when James and I sat down and talked about the themes and uh, uh, the themes that I'd like to write for the movie and that he would like to hear. Um, there, was a, there was a good list. And, and of course, once you've written all those themes, that gives you lots of material to mine as you, as you score the movie. You, you know, I try to make uh, once we once we go beneath the waves. I, I try to make the score feel feel different, uh, and that that was my main aim right from the very beginning. So, uh, as you described Arthur, I mean, he's very brash, very sarcastic at times, um, and you're not just scoring, you know, that part of him, nor the action, because, you know, he's he's a big fellow, we can see that. But there are these deep emotional aspects to him and to his story. What about scoring music for that? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of heart throughout the movie. And, and, and Arthur, you know, is, is a good man. And, uh, and he has a journey in this, in, in this movie. He doesn't, particularly want to be king and he doesn't particularly want to be a hero um he's you know he's happy with his life um at the beginning of the movie and has to be persuaded to to show the heroism but once we get there he embraces it with both hands and and so he's he's a natural hero he's he does it because he believes and he and he has a lot of heart so um yeah, no, I, mean, I, I, I found that, you know, the way that James and I approach some of the big uh, action sequences when he's being heroic, we, we approach them from an emotional place. You know, we can see on, on the screen that, that, that there's a lot, there's a lot of action, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of fighting going on. And, and, and we really wanted just to reach into the story of, of what the outcome of this could, could mean for the people of Atlantis and, and for, for land dwellers rather than just commenting on people getting beaten up.
the music for the Atlanteans has a very synthy sci-fi aspect to it. Now, one of the screenwriters, Will Beale, had described Atlantis as Rome if it hadn't fallen. How does your music fit into that? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I you know, Rome if it hadn't if it hadn't fallen would have technologically been more advanced than we are now. Perhaps you know, I mean, the, the, looking at the technology that that uh, that the Ro- the Romans had two thousand years ago, uh, if it hadn't fallen, I guess it would be as advanced as Atlantis is in our story, and because their their technology is beyond ours. Uh, and they they haven't used it for, for for war against us yet. Tell me more about those synths that you used and some of the more interesting instruments that you incorporated. Well, one of the great joys of scoring this movie was was wheeling out the synths that I hadn't had a chance to use really for for, for years, and borrowing, beg borrowing. You know, I borrowed some synths off off my brother Harry and off um, off Hans Zimmer, um, and and I went up to to my shed at the top of the field and, and pulled out a whole bunch of old synths that I hadn't used in 20 years. And um, so that was great. And in fact, there's a sound that I, I used at the beginning of the movie once, very, very close, actually, when we get to this, where we, where we see the words Aquaman on, on the screen. And, and I use it for when Arthur um, is, is busy about his business. Um, as a synth sound that sort of rises, it's a glissando sound. And uh, it, it took me a couple of days to make it, but, you know, passing old Jupiter 8 sound through a vocoder and and then reamping it back into the room. And uh, it, that that all was great fun. And, and, and uh, James enjoyed that process too, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, that was great. I, and I've had to return some of those synths, sadly. And, uh, and some of the synths have gone back into the shed. <laughs> but, you know, who knows if Aquaman 2 comes, we might get them back out again. Don't let them collect dust for too long. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Where can people hear your music next? There will be. Um, I'm doing uh, Catch Twenty Two with George Clooney at the moment. Um, yeah, which is something that's really exciting and 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 a lot of fun. Um, I always, as always, I'm, I love working with my friend Adam Sander, and there will be, there, I'm sure there will be a, another Adam Sander film appearing sometime uh, <laughs> with with my music on it. I love love working with him. There's various various things in the pipeline. Excellent, and you're working with Harry now. You... Yeah, working with Harry. Yeah, I mean, uh, what a joy. We ha- we haven't done it since we were, I don't know, since we were in our early twenties. Um, <laughs> so we've been looking, you know, we've been looking for too long to, to, to for some project that might suit us to working together, and, and we found something. So you know, what a, what fun that's going to be the next few months. Yeah, it's working out well. I know what it would be like if I worked with my sister on a project, but what what is it like <laughs> for you working with a sibling? Well, it's great. I mean, if you think about it, not many people can, you know, not many people do this job. I mean, I can name a few brothers, but, you know, to, to, to have somebody who understands, who can 
emphasize exactly how it is uh, in this business. I mean, Harry and I talk a lot with, on our different films. You know, you say this year we've both done some underwater action. And, uh, <laughs> you know, during during the process, we've, we've spoken to each other about how we're both doing. And no one can emphasize more in the world, really, your own brother. Um, so no, it's been, it's been lovely actually. I mean, you, you, you could, you could actually see in a situation where it could be tricky, but it, it, it hasn't been at all. We've, we've naturally fallen into a great collaboration and, um, you know, better than I, than I could have imagined really. Um, it's been, it's, it's been a joy and, you know, we're, we've already within a short amount of time written some, some lovely stuff together. The full version of this interview may be read on Filmscore Monthly Online's website, fsmonlinemag.com. Please consider subscribing for more composer interviews, score analyses, and album reviews. Follow the Soundcast on Twitter at Audio Soundcast for info on upcoming episodes, including the Soundcast 6 and Soundcast Stereo. I'm Kristen Romanelli. Thank you for listening to this Soundcast interview.